Good morning, I will. It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, the warm days and great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, the colorful leaves and the cool, dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, but it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle age I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, but I never got what I wanted. This poem entitled Present Tense was printed in the Chicago Tribune in 1989. It was written by a 14-year-old boy named Jason Lehman who lived in New Haven, Connecticut. Even at the age of 14, this young boy demonstrated wisdom beyond his years as he articulates this desire to always want what we don't have. This intense desire is known as covetousness. Today, I will speak briefly about the 10th commandment, which says, thou shalt not covet. In particular, Exodus 20:17 reads like this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Would you please bow your heads with me as I pray over this message? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So you know, when I use the word covet, I feel like I'm reaching back into the dark ages to pull an old relic out of my hat. I don't know about you, but the term covet feels so outdated to me. It's not a term we typically use in contemporary culture. Even more so, when we look at the list of the Ten Commandments, do not covet seems a bit more puny than the other commandments. I mean, everyone can understand why it says do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery, but do not covet? Hmm, perhaps we could have left that one off the list, right? It's like the little sibling of the other commandments, or at least it seems. But after doing a bit of my own study in preparation for this message, I'm learning that this is quite the contrary. In fact, some call covetous not the little sibling of the other commandments, but the mother sin of all the Ten Commandments. And if you will allow me this brief time, I want to respond to three questions today. The first question is, what is covetousness? Or 
What does it mean to covet? The second question is, what is the fruit or result of covetousness? And the third is, how do I respond to the covetousness that might just be lurking in my own heart? And I need you to bear with me because I'm going to be going through several scriptures today. So what is covetousness? To covet is to long for what we don't have, what we used to have, or what we wish we had that someone else has. It not only says, I want what I don't have, it also says, I want what you have. And it says, I deserve to have what you have. Covetousness is not the sibling of the Ten Commandments, it is the mother sin. I use the term mother sin because evil desire has the capacity to give birth to sin. James 1:14 through 15 says it like this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Unlike the other commandments that focus on the external actions of a person, this commandment cuts deep, deep into the activities of our heart, mind, and will. It exposes the motives and intents of the heart, condemning sin as soon as it is entertained in one's affections. You see, when James talks about covetousness, he actually uses the term lust. So to talk about covetousness is also to talk about evil or inordinate desires that do not take into account the rights of others. Let me repeat what James seeks to convey. Evil desire leads to sin, and sin leads to death. Let me ask you, what is in the womb of your desire? See, covetousness can be as simple as desiring the wrong things. This form of covetousness is a little easier to diagnose. But covetousness can also be desiring the right things at the wrong time, desiring the right things for the wrong reason, or desiring the right things in an excessive amount. This form of covetousness is more tricky to discern. Now, I want to be really clear about something. Covetousness, as I've defined it, is not equal to desire. For desire in and of itself is not wrong. In fact, our desires are God-given and can be holy. Rightly ordered desires operate as a mechanism for us to delight in God, to find fulfillment and pleasure in the good gifts God gives. Desire should draw us close to God. God takes pleasure in our enjoyment of him and of the good things he gives to us. Desire should create in us a longing to be in God's presence. However, when our desire draws us away from God, this is when we have to ask ourselves, what are we coveting? What are we seeking to satisfy us and bring contentment to us apart from God. Now, when I've done this study and looked at the biblical text, 
I found a lot of um, scriptures about covetousness. And so we as believers are told to beware of covetousness, to put to death covetousness, to flee from covetousness, and to cut off those who practice covetousness. In other words, it seems like the biblical text reinforces that covetousness poses a danger to us, a danger to our freedom. So what does covetousness look like? A prime example of covetousness is in the very beginning, in the Garden of Eden. You all know the story, right? God gave a command to Adam and Eve that they could eat from all the other trees except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says, if you eat of this particular tree, you will die. The serpent then comes and says, come on, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so what happens? The enemy who has always coveted the place of God and the allegiance of the people of God deceives them into looking at the forbidden tree with human eyes. The scriptures continue, it reads, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So she covets what she sees. She has every other tree, but the one tree she does not have, the one tree that does not belong to her, all of a sudden becomes desirable because of what it will do for her. In this story, covetousness looks like this. The lust of the eyes. Eve, she was enticed by what she saw and coveted it. The lust of the flesh. Eve thought that it would be pleasing to eat and coveted it. And the pride of life, Eve thought she would be like God and coveted it. And my sister Eve begins to doubt the word of God and begins to ask, if this tree can do all that for me, why wouldn't God give me that? Well, fast forward, both Eve and Adam eat the fruit and Eve gets what she wants, her eyes are opened, and for the first time ever, we see humanity experience shame. For their eyes are now open, and they can see their own nakedness, and they run to find something to hide behind. The lust of the eyes, the pride of life, and the lust of the flesh, covetousness become a doorway to shame and bondage. And some of you may be in a situation like Eve. God has told you one thing, but you can't understand why God would restrict you. And you may be asking God right now, why won't you give me that? Why won't you give me him? Why won't you give me her? Have you considered that God is not trying to restrict you, God is trying to protect you. Sometimes God needs to protect us from ourselves. Covetousness will undoubtedly bring shame upon us when we walk in disobedience to God. Covetousness is the mother of discontentment. 
Covetousness does not just impact oneself, it also impacts others. You see, commandments five to 10 talk about how we ought to engage in social relationships with others. What is unique about covetousness though is, out of those five commandments that deal with relationships, it is the only commandment that is not based on external actions. To covet exposes how the attitude of the heart directly influences our social engagement with others. Let me give you another biblical example. Do any of you remember the story of King Ahab in 1 Kings 21? So basically Ahab sees a, sees a vineyard which is owned by Naboth. Naboth shares with King Ahab how valuable this inheritance is to him and his family. King Ahab still wants that piece of land. What belongs to someone else, King Ahab thinks it should belong to him. He doesn't mark it off his list as a failed business venture. No, covetousness causes him to pursue the land rather than a healthy relationship with Naboth. And guess who ends up dead? Naboth is dead and King Ahab gets the land. Covetousness in the heart of those with power often result in the oppression of those with less power. Micah 1, 1 through 2 says, Woe to them that devise iniquity and work evil upon their heads. When the morning is light, they practice it because it is in the power of their hand. And they covet fields and take them by violence and houses and take them away. So they oppress a man and his house, even a man and his heritage. You see, some of the conquests in the past were not divine sanctions of manifest destiny, they were human conquests born from a covetous heart. You see, James is clear about what oftentimes sit at the root of conflict. James 4.1 reads, so what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. The story of Adam and Eve and King Ahab are just two stories of covetousness in the Bible, but the Bible is littered with examples of covetousness. I think of Jacob coveted in the birthright of Esau. I think of King Saul coveting the attention that David got after killing Goliath. I think of King David coveting Bathsheba, the wife of another man, and David staging the death of her husband to claim Bathsheba as his wife. I think about Haman coveting power to exercise over Mordecai, Queen Esther, and the Jewish people. I think of the rich young ruler, the parable of the fool, Judas, coveting 30 pieces of silver. I think of richer nations who covet the resources of poorer nations and will exploit and extort to lay claim of it. But desiring something we should not have or does not belong to us is not just a trap for those with power and or wealth. It can also, also be a dangerous distraction and deadly trap for those who do not have money, those who perhaps travel across borders to seek the American dream only to discover that that dream was only available to a select few. 
Story after story demonstrates that the fruit of covetousness is destruction. Covetousness, as defined above, is the mother of discontentment. In Luke, when two brothers are arguing over their inheritance and they bring their case to Jesus, you know what Jesus says to them? He says, take heed and beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. You see, sometimes God doesn't always give us what we want because he knows that the very thing we seek to possess can very easily begin to possess us. The things we seek to own can easily own us. The thing that God gave can actually become our God. How easily we begin to worship the created thing rather than the creator. And we who have been covetous find ourselves back at square one with the first couple of commandments that center on the worship of God only and no idols before him. Perhaps this is why Colossians 3, 5 says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. My friends, when you break the commandment of covetousness, you are not just guilty of breaking commandment 10, but also commandment 1 and commandment 2. In other words, covetousness is a mother's sin that leads to law-breaking beyond itself. Now, I've given biblical examples, but what does covetousness look like in contemporary culture? Well, we don't have to look far to see covetousness in our everyday lives. For instance, it's no surprise that we often take our fashion cues from the celebrities. Okay, for example, for women, can anybody tell me where those eyelash fads come from? Or the nail fads that make you look like cat women? <laughs> we are not the celebrities, but we covet their ability to attract attention. Covet more curves or less curves. Covet bigger lips or lighter skin. Cover bigger booties or little booties. We don't want to be a snack. We want to be a full course meal. You get my point, right? <laughs> and for guys, the desire for fame, influence, and respect to be muscular, to be cool, to be suave, to be smooth, to have expensive sneakers, the slick bow tie, all in service of being a real man. We covet to look and feel like the world. Yeah. And I'll tell you, when you grow up in the hood like I did, kids are not nice when it comes to off-brand clothing. And so I remember when my grandma would take me to Goodwill and I would duck so people could not see me out of the window. I did not want people making fun of me and I coveted name-brand clothes because my clothes sometimes came from Goodwill. But now that I'm older, I realize that all the rich people shop at Goodwill. <laughs> now, some of you are saying under your breath, that's not me, that's too worldly. I'm saved now. How about Christian dating on this campus? 
that requires you to be married three months after college so you can begin so you can begin the life you've always coveted, perhaps the life you see others enjoying. You know where you and your hubby begin to live the American dream. It's funny because in America, we are one of the most prosperous nations as it relates to material things, but perhaps one of the most discontented. Perhaps this is because we are always looking for the next big thing. Some pastors actually call covetousness the destination disease because covetousness seems to place our focus on the when at the expense of the now. Only when I have that husband or wife will I be complete. Only when I have the promotion will I be successful. Only when I have the car will I be able to travel the way I want. Only when I have the house will I have enough space for my kids. Only when I have those spiritual gifts will I be powerful in God. Only when I have that child will I be a true woman. Only when I lose 50 pounds will I be pretty. Only when I make more money will I be rich. Only when I get this grade will my future be secure. Only when I score these points in the game will I be valued. Only when this changes. Only when this is different. Only when, only when. When we focus on the when, we sacrifice the now on the altar of discontentment. The when wraps us in its grips, inciting anxiety and restlessness as we work toward amassing the more all at the same time that striving, robbing us of joy, peace, and gratitude. But a heart that covets is never satisfied, quite the contrary. In fact, every time you feed a covetous heart, it desires more, better, faster. A heart at the root of covetousness is selfishness. A heart that is oriented to what I can get, how I can be happy, how I can honor and respect to what I think is best. I is at the center of covetousness. And the truth is, when our strivings result in emptiness and we recognize that it does not have the capacity to fulfill the deepest longings of our heart, we sink into depression because covetousness is the mother of discontentment. By human design, when we see something that appears or we perceive to be good, we are hardwired to long for it. Proverbs 27.20 says, death and destruction are never satisfied and neither are human eyes. We are incapable of discerning the good simply by looking with our human eyes and using human wisdom. Obedience is what trains our hearts and eyes to see. When we follow our own inclinations and trust our own sight and trust our own feelings and trust our own assessment of what is good, we become gods to our appetites enslaves to our passion, and then it becomes really difficult between what is good, to discern between what is good and what is wrong. You see, desire in and of itself is not wrong. Unsurrendered desire is what's wrong. And any desire that longs for possessions, promotion, partner, parent, spiritual gifts of another, eats of the fruit of selfishness and discontentment. 
So now what? Without going into too much detail, I want to tell you four really quick things that might help you become, overcome covetousness. The first is contentment. The first way to combat covetousness is contentment. Hebrews 13.5 reads, Keep your lives free from covetousness and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Benjamin Franklin says, contentment makes poor men rich, discontent makes rich men poor. If you want to know someone who has learned the secret of contentment, look at the life of the Apostle Paul. While in prison, with knowledge that death may be before him, Paul writes, what has become known as the epistle of joy. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, he says, I am not saying this because I am need, in need, for I have learned to be content. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in every and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things, all this through him who gives me strength. You see, Paul's contentment is not wrapped up in his circumstance. Rather, Paul's contentment is wrapped up in knowing that God's strength is made perfect in his weakness. Some of you just need to know today that God's strength is made perfect in you, even as the circumstance you are currently in is being used to perfect you, to make you whole and complete. You need to know that God is still with you, that you are not forgotten, that you are not forsaken, don't let your circumstance rob you of what you've come to know and believe about God. The second way to combat covetousness is through love. Therefore, as the scripture says, love is the fulfillment of the law. In the culture that is all about one's own advancement, love is countercultural and produces Christ-like character in those who are formed by it. The third way is gratitude. Gratitude chooses to focus on what one has rather than focus on what one does not have or what one would like to have. It helps to remind us of the faithfulness of God in our lives. And the final one is generosity. Generosity shifts the focus from ourselves to others. It's hard to fixate on desiring what others have when your desire is to bless them through the gift of generosity. And so as the song plays, I just want to give you an opportunity to respond to the message and reflect on what you have heard and ask God to pull back the layers of your heart and reveal where you may have let covetousness creep in.